definitely not the G8, progressive perspectives on international development and finance issues. In this episode, we take an in-depth look at the Group of 20, or G20, an international body that has come to dominate global politics in recent years. Part one is a look at the origins of the G20 and its current actions. And in part two, we take a look at what the G20 may become. For many years, the Group of Seven, or G7, along with the International Monetary Fund, IMF, were considered the preeminent international political fora for making economic decisions. The G7 was comprised of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the USA, and later was joined by Russia to form the G8. The tight cooperation among these wealthy nations reflected traditional concepts of global economic power divisions. But this began to change with the global financial crisis that spanned from 1997 to 1999. Professor Andrew Cooper of the Center for International Governance Innovation, a Canadian think tank, describes the genesis of the G20. The G20 brought in sort of this mix of countries, and I think on a degree of equality. And I think, you know, going back to the prior crisis, uh, back in the late 1990s, whether you call it the Asian crisis or the IMF crisis, the big solution then was to have the G20 of finance ministers. Not only, of course, finance ministers of the major sort of established countries, but of course of China, India, Brazil, and other countries from the global south. In 1999, then-Canadian Finance Minister Paul Martin and then-nominee for U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers sought to bring together 20 countries, economic giants and regional powers, representing 80% of the world's economic wealth. The group of 20 nations is comprised of the G7 countries, plus Argentina, Australia, Brazil, China, India, Indonesia, South Korea, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Turkey, and the European Union. Roy Culpepper, the former director of the North-South Institute and currently at the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development, discusses the emergence of the G20 at the leaders' level in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis. The more recent crisis, which in a sense we're still coming out of, was the harbinger of the creation of the G20 at the leader's level. This was the first time that the G20 had met at the level of the heads of government, something that people like Paul Martin, when he was prime minister and finance minister, had long pushed for but had been unable to achieve. But the crisis had gotten so bad by the middle of 2008 that George Bush, who was then president, decided the time had come to convene the uh, G20 at the leaders' level in order to try and arrest the spiral down into what could have been an economic depression of major magnitude. The debut G20 Leader Summit was held in Washington in 2008. Then, subsequent meetings were held in London and Pittsburgh in 2009, and Toronto and Seoul, Korea in 2010. Beginning in 2011 with the summit in France, these meetings will only occur annually. In 2009, at the Pittsburgh summit, the G20 declared itself the new premier forum for deciding issues of international economic cooperation. So, how successful has this leaders' forum been? I think it's important to give credit where credit is due. The G20 did show leadership in arresting uh, what could have been a massive economic collapse 
on the magnitude of the Great Depression of 70 years ago or for 80 years ago. Their um, agreement to come together in 2008 and inject stimulus into each of their economies averted that worst-case scenario. So I, I think it's important to give the G20 credit for that. Having done that, what they've been unable to do is to come together to agree on the shape of the recovery. Central to disagreements in the G20 has been the issue of how to correct global trade imbalances. No one is changing their behavior sufficiently to arrest the accumulation of imbalance. In other words, the Americans are saving too little, they're consuming too much, and China is doing the opposite. It's saving too much and uh, not boosting domestic consumption. But the same also goes for other countries that are generating surpluses, notably the Germans and the Japanese. The question of timing of each country's economic recovery is also essential to the post-crisis debate. Here is Andrew Cooper. At the same time, you know, from that period on, countries are sort of coming out of that collective dive at different speeds in different time periods. So this really complicates things for the G20 because some countries still want the G20 to be acting as a crisis committee, particularly the United States. It wants, you know, still more stimulus. And of course, this is why the Americans at the national level turn to things like the QE1, the QE2, you know, all of these sort of, you know, putting dollars into the system. But at the same time, other countries, particularly the European countries, want to really put the brakes on that stimulus package. And you can see countries, Germany, the UK particularly, really want to have a more austerity-oriented approach. So there's sort of these tensions between the G20, between different countries. And then, of course, China has tensions regionally. Some parts of China are sort of overstimulated. The fear is inflation. But when you look interior of China, that's where the government wants to put some stimulus package to create new jobs and create new economic production. So again, it becomes a bit messy for the G20. And there's no one real exit strategy. And of course, this is the complication. As part of its economic governance agenda, the G20 has also discussed issues such as alternatives to using the U.S. dollar as a global currency an idea that China supports and the U.S. is very much opposed to. Various G20 actors have also promoted reform of the banking financial system in all summits since the global financial crisis. One such proposal is a financial transactions tax, a progressive tax that would make future crises less likely. The financial transactions tax is explored in another Definitely Not the G8 podcast. The G20 agenda has expanded beyond global economic governance to include labor, climate change, and international development. Andrew Jackson, chief economist at the Canadian Labour Congress, discusses the G20's handling of global labor issues, beginning with the effects of the current financial crisis. The financial crisis spread to the real economy with devastating consequences for workers around the world in terms of employment and unemployment. I guess just to flip that around, I would argue that the root causes of the crisis are much deeper than the poor regulation, the reckless behavior of the banking system, and that the stage for this crisis was really set by developments in labor markets around the world over at least the previous decade. At the Pittsburgh summit, at the peak of the financial crisis, 
the G20 committed to implementing policies consistent with the International Labour Organization's fundamental principles. However, the focus on labour issues did not last. A lot of that became very diluted, to say the least, in the outcome of the Toronto G20 summit. And clearly, there was a shift in emphasis. Once sort of absolute disaster appeared to have been averted and some kind of global recovery had been set in train, especially in the larger developing countries, then the focus on unemployment, particularly unemployment in the US and Europe, Canada, and issues of underdevelopment and development fell off the table and the priority became dealing with the growth of government deficits and debt and the crisis. So I'd say now that we're in the quote-unquote recovery, I think the key problems to sort of bear in mind, the ones I flagged are still with us, but there is still huge problems with the economic marginalization of many developing countries around the world. Then if we turn to the advanced capitalist countries, there's been very little meaningful recovery in the job market from the depths of the recession, particularly in the United States where unemployment is still very close to 10%, very high rates of unemployment in many European countries. There's very much a prospect of a European recovery, which has been very slow and tentative in any case, being derailed. Climate Change Director at the Pembina Institute, a Canadian sustainable energy think tank, explains the G20's role in climate change negotiations. We see the primary home for climate conversations internationally as being the UN, and specifically the Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the reason for that is that everybody's in the room, not just the big polluters, but the countries that are going to be feeling the consequences most. So it's the most fair, it's the most inclusive place to have this conversation about a problem that truly affects everybody. However, when you go to the G20 table, you've got 80% plus of the world's emissions represented there. Between China and the U.S. alone, you've got 40% of the world's emissions. So really, the countries that are a big part of the problem are sitting around that table. At the summit in Pittsburgh, the G20 called for the phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies by 2020 in order to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions in 2050 by 10%. They set up a work program to be discussed at the 2010 Toronto summit. There was a very clear opportunity that the government of Canada had to move this issue forward. There was very clear pressure from some international leaders to do so. And unfortunately, there was a very disappointing result. So in Toronto, the G20 communique essentially just said, thank you to the ministers for their work. We'll continue working on this at future summits. And nothing concrete. We had expected a document to be published that laid out countries' plans. It wasn't actually published at the summit. It was published afterwards. What we saw from Canada was just simply reiterating commitments they had already made in the past. Nothing new since Pittsburgh, which was very disappointing. Climate change will be on the agenda again at the G20 summit in Caen, France, in 2011. This will be mere months in advance of the UN Climate Change Conference in Durban, South Africa, in December 2011. I certainly have higher hopes for France, given its track record, given the fact that this is an issue where you know, we've seen some 
interesting policy ideas coming out of the government of France on some of the innovative financing thinking, for example, some climate policies they have in place that are interesting. They are going to need to choose to make this a priority amongst others, and I don't know yet whether they are going to do that. But the timing of this particular G20, with so much emphasis being put on Durban for the climate change conference to deliver, this G20 is going to be very important. The climate is at the top of the agenda there, so that that particular group of countries can give momentum to the UN. G20 has gradually been expanding its scope to include international development. As part of this, it has been setting tasks for the global aid lending bodies, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Andrew Cooper explains how the G20 revitalized the IMF. The G20 isn't an institution in terms of having a large secretariat or a large sort of bureaucracy. So it needed an institution to provide it a sort of technical capacity. At the same time, the uh, IMF was in demand again through the G20 because the G20 was able to essentially give it more of the resources to land. And of course, at the same time, there were countries that needed lending. So it was, again, the, the sort of problems turned out to into solutions. The first two G20 meetings in Washington, D.C. in November 2008, in London, April 2009, you can see this sort of huge stimulus put into the system, you know, a trillion dollars, and probably half of that was either directly or indirectly given to the IMF. Many in development circles are critical of this endorsement of the IMF, which has traditionally insisted that borrowing countries adopt pro-cyclical policies, part of what is known as the Washington Consensus. Gauri Srinivasan of the Canadian Centre for International Cooperation, which is an umbrella organization of Canadian development organizations, explains. There's been a lot of speculation and concern about to what extent the G20 will be reproducing the old Washington consensus approach, the strong focus on open markets and liberalized trade and finance, which has led us through a boom and bust cycle and through the kind of crisis that we're in today, and the hope that the strong resistance from countries like Brazil and South Africa to the Washington consensus will bring a new approach to legitimize and validate the importance of accountable state intervention in markets. At the summit in November 2010 in Seoul, Korea, the G20 launched a development agenda that seemed to signal a break from traditional models of development. Mark Fried is with Oxfam Canada, a non-governmental organization focused on international development. Here, he describes the policy out of Seoul. Oxfam said it was a break with the Russian consensus. It certainly is. I mean, they were very clear saying there is no one-size-fits-all. That solutions coming out of Washington can't be applied everywhere. Countries have to have their own institutions and their own approach to development, and countries have to be in charge of their own development. And this is a real change in rhetoric, at least. How that spills out into countries' policies and multilateral institutions' policies remains to be seen. But there is an acknowledgement, I think this came out of the financial crisis more than anything, which made everybody question the wisdom of neoliberal globalization, if you hadn't questioned it already. <laughs> and uh, then the rising political clout of the developing countries within the G20, who could say, look, we've managed to reduce poverty significantly in our countries and to develop our economies. 
not by following your advice, but by bucking the trend. You look at our experience, it's very different. And that, I think, is an important lesson for the multilateral institutions to embrace. The G20 has also endorsed the reform of the IMS voting system, and a move that, in theory, would increase the influence developing countries have in the IMF decision-making process. What has happened is that certainly India, Brazil, China have increased their influence, particularly China, has a much larger voice and vote. Uh, the vote of the poorest countries has been maintained, that is, it hasn't been diminished. And the Europeans have given up some of their vote, not much. <laughs> so there's been a bit of a rebalancing. And the reason this is happening is in part because particularly China, India, and Brazil, and Russia, I should say, have clout in the international economy. The old G8 needs them, can't actually address the global financial crisis without their assistance and their help. And they say, well, you know, if we're going to do our part, we want to do our part, we have to have a say in these institutions. Now, of course, there was a debate among some developing countries uh, about whether it was wise to actually get in there and rather to dump those institutions and start new ones. That is the conclusion of part one. In part two, we look at the changing face of the G20 and get some perspectives on possible G20 reforms. 